So my name's Larry Locke. You can hear me okay at the back? It's all right? Good, thanks. Yeah, so if we haven't met, that's okay. Um, I teach business at UMHB. It's my first time to join you here at the table. Um, I'm really kind of excited about it. It's cool that you've organized yourselves around sort of age and stage rather than whether you're currently, you know, in college or not. It sort of gets me wondering, I can't help thinking that is it really a better organizational axis than having a college ministry? Why do we even have a college ministry? I don't know. It's sort of interesting, interesting uh, question. It's great to see you all here, though. I've been charged to talk to you tonight about God's will. We all right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Did I, you know, was there like something? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm supposed to talk to you tonight about God's will, and I understand others have discussed this topic with you already, but my particular assignment is to talk to you about um, God's will with respect to careers. And I'm not shocked that you want to talk about God's will in general or God's will with respect to careers in particular. Um, people of your age and stage, if they're Christian, tend to be very interested in uh, God's will for their lives. And that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, when we acknowledge that God is our Lord and Master, then wanting to know his will for us sounds like a very important sort of central question to who we are and what we're about. Unfortunately, I am skeptical of your interest in God's will. People of your age and stage in postmodern America face a defining set of problems, all of which revolve around making um, decisions about the future. So when I look at myself from age 18 to 25, I decided where to go to college at least twice. I decided what degree I would pursue again at least twice. I decided where I would go to church five times. I decided where I was going to live at least a dozen times. I decided who I was going to live with uh, at least three times. I decided who I would marry mercifully just once. Um, I decided where I would first go to work. I decided where I would second go to work. Uh, I, when I was your age, I actually dropped out of college for a while and, and did some consulting work for some banks and investment firms. I decided where to go to grad school again twice. Uh, and by the end of it, I, I was helping to decide what my first child's name would be. Right? Life changes uh, where you are in it. Right? My life changed at the fastest rate it ever has, before or since, between 18 and 25. And your life is moving at that same pace. You are drinking from a fire hose of life-altering decisions. And that will make you anxious. It will make you uptight. I mean, you know that many of the decisions that you have to make right now are going to have a lifelong impact on how you experience life every day. Right? It's just going to have a big effect. You know this question of, of who you will choose to be your life's partner. It's going to have a major impact on your life. You know that because you've seen it before in, in the people around you. I have a niece who married her college sweetheart, and they just seem to be getting on super well. And She's a doctor of physical therapy or something, and he's a technologist. And they have this little two-year-old daughter, and she's the cutest thing in the world. And they have a 
two-story house, and, and they're just, you know, seem to be just really loving their life together. At the same time, I have a nephew who married his college sweetheart, and within two years, he was divorced because she preferred someone uh, to sleep with at her office, and now he lives alone and has just changed jobs and really struggles with depression, right? You've seen that story too, yes? I mean, we've seen this in, in the people that we know. And so we know that who you choose as your spouse has a great impact on life. So it's like we were all taught in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, right? Choose wisely. That's, that's how it works. Um, and the same thing is true uh, about where you go to college and what you major in. And I've seen young people train for the wrong careers. I know a young fellow graduated a couple of years ago, magna cum laude, super smart guy. It wasn't him. Um, uh, he could. He had, He got a technology degree. He could have picked any. He could still pick any one of a large number of high-paying jobs all over Central Texas, or for that matter, anywhere, right? With a degree that he's got, um, but but he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't like doing what he trained to do. And, and so now he's thinking about going back to basically starting over again to try and retrain for something else. And that's not the bad story. Right? The bad story is when, is when you train for something that you find out you don't like and you go on and do it anyway for every day for the rest of your life knowing that you don't like it. Right? I mean, what would it be like to every day have to get up and, and go into a job at which you're completely miserable that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Right? And, and it doesn't matter whether it's sort of high-paying or low-paying jobs. Uh, uh, I know some people with very high-paying jobs that are miserable in what they're doing. I had a surgeon once who hated what he did. Yeah, right. Op I mean, he was a very good surgeon, operated on me twice. Right? All right? Uh, you know? Uh, uh, he did a very good job. But just dealing with patients before and after surgery just made him so anxious, so uptight. He really, really hated being a surgeon. And yet here he is, you know, still continuing to do that sort of work because he refused to get out of a, a career that he, that he didn't like. And he has all these coping mechanisms that he uses. They're not good for him. They're not good for his family. There are worse stories. Right? So when Mrs. Flieger tells me that you lot are really interested in God's will. I get it. Right? If God can somehow help me avoid winding up at the end of a totally miserable road, right? I'm all ears. Right? Talk to me. The anxiety of having to make all of these sort of life-altering, life-directing decisions is pretty intense for you. And if you tell me that God can alleviate all of that risk for you, I mean, bring it on, yeah? Yeah, I strongly suspect you already know where I'm headed here. If you're interested in the will of God and your interest is purely instrumental, right? It's solely to satisfy your own need to avoid the anxiety or to help you maximize your happiness that may further come in life. Then you're not really interested in the will of God at all. Um, you're interested in you. And if you're hoping that God will make you more comfortable or more secure, then you do not know God. 
God is deeply interested in your happiness. God is deeply invested in, in calming your anxiety. But he is way more interested in your holiness. And my experience with God suggests that he is completely willing to increase your anxiety and multiply your unhappiness in order to encourage your holiness. Let me give you an example. All my life, my besetting sin was the sin of selfishness. That probably doesn't surprise some of you. Um, it has to do with how I was raised and you know, what my family of origin was like and, and a lot of decisions that I made along the way as well. My parents were not super into family, and so I had a lot of unsupervised time growing up. Uh, at eight years old, I was allowed to leave our apartment building on the coast of northern Hong Kong and to walk to the top of the hill at which I would catch a minibus that would take me about 30, 40 minutes into the outskirts of Kowloon and drop me at a big sort of giant bus depot for that side of the city. And there I would get on uh, one of the big big buses, the city buses, you know, the big double-decker red buses like you see in, in London or Oxford. And I would get on one of those and take it all the way across, maybe change once or twice, all the way across uh, Kowloon to the harbor, right, to where all the cruise ships docked and where all the freighters docked. And I would spend the day in the city, you know, in a city at that time of about 5 million people and the most densely populated city in the world at that time, in a city in which virtually nobody spoke my language. And, and I would spend the day at the Ocean Terminal Mall and maybe I'd buy some comic books and a bit of lunch or something like that. And at the end of the day, I would retrace my steps a little over an hour um, to get back. And I didn't think anything about that as a boy, right? I mean, why would you? I didn't think anything about it until uh, I had children of my own. And then uh, one day I realized how totally crazy that was. Right? I mean, when my children were eight years old, I, I didn't let them play in the front yard, right? And here I am sort of off uh, doing all these things. And so I enjoyed a great deal of freedom as an eight-year-old, as, as a child. And one of the things that taught me was self-reliance, right? If, if the bus that I'm supposed to pick up at the bus depot is delayed, then I've got to figure out what I'm going to do about it, right? But it turns out that it's a very short distance between self-reliant and sort of self-referenced, right? And it's probably also a very short distance from uh, self-reference to selfish, and that's been my besetting sin. I have a really hard time seeing the world from someone else's point of view. And I really struggle to care about that. This was my struggle all my life. And I knew it was wrong to be so selfish. And, and I saw how it hurt my wife. I saw how it hurt my children. I prayed about it for decades. Lord, can you please make me love other people. Can you please sort of open my heart to the people around me? Prayed about this literally for decades. And then I got cancer. Uh, not only did I get cancer, I got two different kinds of cancer. Uh, one was second stage, one was third stage. The tumors had been in me for 10 years before they were discovered. 
And my prognosis was bad. You know, I had less than 50-50 chance of survival. And my treatment was gosh awful. I'll I'll spare you uh, the gory details about it, but suffice it to say that it's as horrible as, as everybody tells you it can be. There were days when my body felt like it was on fire. And, and there were times that I prayed fervently to the Lord to be able to stand up. It was just really difficult. And then um, through that process, God broke my selfishness. It was like he backed a truck down to the river where this giant boulder was parting the water all around it. And he threw his chain around that truck, around that rock, and hauled it out. Right? And then the water just ran placid and smooth on top of it. It, uh, it. There was a day when I was laying in the bed, which I did a lot of in that period, and I could hear my children uh, playing in the swimming pool in my backyard, uh, without me, of course. They were playing out there, and I realized that that was the future. And that maybe sooner, maybe later, that they would be playing out there without me because I would be dead. And when I died, everything that I had invested in me would die with me. And only what I had invested in other people would survive. Only those things that I had invested in people like my children or people like you. And that broke um, sin from me. It was uh, as if my entire cancer experience had been designed to allow me that one thing that I had prayed for for so many decades. That was a big, long, convoluted illustration, but I hope it proves to you a very important point. The Lord God Almighty is willing for me to walk through two years of pain in order to make me more like Christ. That is God's will for me. Um, That is God's will for you. Did God give me cancer? I can't say that, uh, you know. Um, But he was clearly willing to allow me to, uh, to have that experience if it would offer me the gift of being more like Jesus. Um, is that not what St. Paul told us in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, 28? Can I, can I, yeah, there it is. Um, uh, um, it's a very familiar text. Can somebody just sort of read it for us? Anybody want that? Want that? I can't actually see you. Um, you're there though, right? Hey, go, go, man. Big voice. Fill the room. Brilliant. Thank you, brother. So it's a very important verse, right, because it provides many people comfort about why they're experiencing the hard things that they do. Perhaps it comforts you in the trials that that you experience. It comforts us to know that God is good and that he has a good plan for us. Um, You know, even when bad things happen, right, God can redeem those, those terrible events in our lives. Uh, and use them to our good. And, and many times we stop there, but that's a very incomplete thought, and it, it looks like we've got the next verse as well. And that's going to be useful to us because 
Verse 28 doesn't answer the question, why? Why, why does God work all things for our good? Right? And, and it also doesn't the question, what does it mean? What does it even mean for God to work things for our good? What is good? I mean, is there a more subjective question than what is good? It's a, uh, we're left with a lot of questions from verse 28, so we need verse 29. Go, bro. Brilliant. Thanks, sir. Well done. So God's will is working things for my good. He's doing that because he wants to build a whole family, a whole community, a whole holy nation of people who are like Jesus. That's what he wants to do. That's the why. And God's definition of good is not like ours. God's idea of the good was not at all what mine was when I was 25. I wanted to be successful. I didn't actually know what that meant. But I wanted to be successful, and, and I wanted to be financially comfortable, and I wanted to have lots of opportunities, and I wanted to have challenges. Right? Nothing wrong with any of those things, but they're very low on God's priorities. God's will is to make me like Jesus, to make me compassionate and kind and loving and caring and wise, and obedient. Right. Now let's talk about your career. I've worked in four or five different industries in my young life, and they all have something in common. They were all different, right? But they all shared this one attribute. They were all made up of some kind of hierarchy that I was invited to climb. Right? That's not shocking the classic organizational model of any business and almost all nonprofit organizations the classic organizational model is a pyramid right and you enter that organization at your age you know somewhere towards the bottom half of that pyramid and they invite you to work your way towards the top of the pyramid that's often referred to as the corporate ladder right you've heard this you've heard this this term the corporate ladder in america this means yes okay good yeah, um, yeah. And so um, we're invited to sort of climb this ladder. And those of us who manage people for a living, uh, like me, um, we provide you with lots of incentives to climb that ladder, right? To, to rise in that pyramid structure that we have created for you. You know what some of those incentives are, right? What, are the, what, what, what do we promise you if you'll climb the ladder? Money, right? Yeah. We'll pay you more. The higher you climb in the pyramid, the more we'll pay you. It's true almost everywhere, right? Professors are paid more than assistant professors. Lead pastors make more, more, make more money than college pastors. Sorry, Flieger. That's how it is, right? You aren't shocked, right? But, but we offer you way more than money to climb the ladder, right? We also offer you power, power over the organization, power over its direction, power over its operations, power over your own life. Right? Because I'm the associate dean of my college, I schedule all the classes for the College of Business every term. And if I decided that I didn't want to teach at 8 o'clock a.m. anymore, I would schedule myself for a different time. 
right? I don't have to teach at any particular time. I will, you know, I'll, I'll teach whenever I decide I'm, I'm going to teach. I also decide whether we're going to offer new programs or not, right? If you told me, ah, Larry, what we really need is a, you know, is a business degree and, you know, hospitality management or something, then you're not going to get it done without, without me. I mean, there are others involved as well, but it's not going forward without my signature. I've got certain prerogatives in, in that environment. Uh, and you're going to have to convince me, right, if you want to make change in the organization. When Flieger launched this ministry, when Mrs. Flieger launched this ministry, she had to have some sit-downs with the executive team and, and get them on board. Yes, um, frankly, when I was a lead pastor, I used to pastor a church in Boston. When I was a lead pastor, I could have had a quick meeting with myself, you know, and decided, yeah, let's go, you know. I, I didn't need to ask anybody. I wouldn't do it that way because that's bad leadership. But I absolutely had the power to do it, right? We will offer you those prerogatives if you will climb the ladder for us. Right? We'll offer you other things too. We'll offer you prestige and recognition and and retirement security and administrative support, right? travel budget. Good Lord, there's, there's almost no end of what we will offer you if you get high enough up in particular pyramid, right? At some level, at some point in that structure, all the resources of the organization become your resources, right? And you get to sort of do with them what you will. And this is almost a universal story of career development. I meet with faculty every year to discuss their careers at the university and help keep them on track for getting promoted or getting tenure or whatever their goals are. I meet with students too. I meet with students every year and to talk about how they can best prepare to advance quickly in the career that they're trying to enter, how they can climb their chosen ladder. Here's the problem with this approach, this almost universally accepted approach. The ladders are not real. The opportunities offered within organizations are an artificial incentive system to convince you to invest more in the organization than the organization is going to invest in you. Organizational leaders like me have understood expectancy theory that you will work for deferred uh, compensation. We've understood that theory for thousands of years. And as managers, we will offer you those incentives to convince you to invest in climbing the ladder. What we cannot tell you, what I couldn't tell you, because the ladder is an illusion, is what's at the top of it. I can't promise that you'll be happier if you get to the top of the ladder. I can't promise that you'll be richer. You'll get paid more, but that doesn't mean, you know, it will stick, right? Just read some professional athlete stories, and, and you'll hear that story many times, that they can be extremely well compensated, but, but retire broke. I can't tell you that you will be richer if you advance up the ladder. Uh, I certainly can't tell you that you will be healthier or that you'll have better relationships or, or that you'll have more satisfaction. Frankly, I, I can't, you know, promise you anything. I absolutely cannot promise you that you will look more like Jesus. Of course, you see the conflict here, right? Uh, um, 
God's will for you is to be more like Jesus. Your efforts pursuing your career are not really leading anywhere, and certainly not to Christ-likeness. So what is the role of careers in the will of God? Does God care about your career? Is he, you know, engaged in this question at all? I think the answer is absolutely. He cares. God cares very much about your career. He also cares very much about um, the other hard decisions you have to make. He cares very much about who your life's partner might be right? and what you might major in and whether you go to grad school and where and what career you pursue, what your first job might be, what training you take on. He cares very much about all of those things. But he cares about those things not because they're the goal. They're not. All of those things are simply that. They are all part of the all things in verse 28 of Romans 8 that God will work in you to turn you into the likeness of Christ. God's goal is not to make you a doctor or a nurse. God's goal is to make you compassionate and responsible like Jesus. And he'll use your work as a doctor or a nurse to build those lessons into your life, to make you more like him. Those are the tools not the end. God's goal is not to make you a champion athlete. God's goal is to make you disciplined and determined like Jesus is disciplined and determined. Picture Christ on the cross. Can you imagine being that disciplined and that determined? That's what God wants to make you. And he will use your athletic training to build discipline and to build determination in you to make you more like Jesus. God's role is not to make you a successful entrepreneur or lawyer or mom or dad. His goal is to work all things, including those things, for your good and his glory to make you and mold you into the very image of Christ so that he can populate a family, a tribe, a community, a nation, a holy nation of people that look like Jesus. Those ladders that we are climbing that drive us to stay up late at night and work really hard and miss out on binging The Bachelor or whatever it is with our friends, right? Those, those ladders that drive us so, those ladders are not God's goal. They don't lead anywhere because they are an illusion. They are merely the details of our lives that God will use to remake us. If you had told me when I was 25 that I would be doing what I am today, it would have made no sense to me, right? I was finishing up law school in Boston. I was about to go to, to Dallas to start uh, practicing. I wasn't terribly excited about Dallas, but my wife wanted to go to Dallas, and I wanted to continue to be married to her. So I was headed to Dallas also. 
I'd never heard of UMHB at that time, and being a professor was not on my ladder. I had a fairly well-defined ladder that I was climbing, and this was not on it. Today, I have a slightly better perspective. Um, today, I'm a professor and associate dean of a college, right? Yeah, whatever. This time next year, I might be sweeping a latrine in Botswana, right? There is no up. There is no down. Because there is no ladder. There is only the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus, right? So that we can be a part of this family, this nation that God is making. And God will work wherever I am and whatever I'm doing to accomplish that end. He will work wherever you are and whatever you're doing to accomplish that end. Your career will be the tools in his hands that he will use to mold you into the image of Christ. Because it's just part of the all things. Just like your marriage. Just like having cancer. Just like everything. Think about it this way. When the nation of Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt and they set out towards Palestine, right? The goal was to get them from Egypt to Palestine. And that's a journey, if you look at a map or if you've ever been, um, that could be accomplished in a matter of a few number of weeks, even walking, even with children and animals, right? You could accomplish that journey in a matter of weeks. It took them 40 years. Why? Why did it take them so long to go such a short distance? If you look at a map, right, of where they actually traveled, it looks like they're wandering in circles, right? They camp out at Sinai for days and days, and then they go up north, and then they circle back, and they crisscross back and forth across Sinai, all these different locations, going back over the same place over and over and stopping here and going on there. It's it's like the worst route whatever to try and get yourself to the promised land, right? But at the same time that they're making this physical journey, they're also on this journey of spiritual formation, right? They had to be taught the ways of the Lord, and they had to grow in their commitment to those ways. So they had to rely on the Lord and to develop courage to take on the challenges that were going to come in front of them and just to rely on the promise of his protection, They had to learn not to complain, right? To to have the discipline to accept what God uh, was doing in their lives. They had to learn to complain when man is all you get, right? They had to learn uh, how to to respond to the provision of God. And if you line up all the things that they were doing at each spot along that winding and twisted route you will see that they were being driven forward on this spiritual journey in a completely straight line. They stop at Sinai to receive to the Ten Commandments and then to get rid of the golden calf, right? And then they go up north to learn that they're not yet ready and, and gain some humility, right? And then they have to come back 
and learn all these new lessons, right? They have to learn. You don't complain about the manna or you get really sick on the quail, right? They have to learn all of those things that God is teaching them so that they can be a holy nation of priests. And they're on this journey to learning those things and they're going straight down that path to get to them, even as they crisscross back and forth geographically, right? In the same way, if you look back at my life, according to climbing the illusory ladders, it will make no sense. I'm up, I'm down, I'm backwards, I'm forwards. But if you look at it from the perspective of God conforming me into the image of Jesus, I am consistently moving forward. Sometimes fast, sometimes slow. But I am consistently being transformed into the image of Christ. Some of you may be able to see that already in your own young lives, right? I just have more data points than you do. I got a lot of data points. I want to leave you with a couple of ideas of application. It can be frustrating in your shoes to get sort of, okay, here's Larry's sort of Beltanchon, here's his worldview. But, you know, I'm still facing these really critical questions, Larry. Thank you very much for the perspective, but the, the deadline for the internship I'm trying to apply for is tonight. So could you give me a hand here? Um, and I'd like to be helpful to you if I can. So how do you know God's will in career decisions? Here's a couple of thoughts. George Mueller was a 19th century uh, German brother, a believer. He uh, did missionary work in the UK and ran orphanages in the UK. He was very famous for his prayer life. Sometime, if you don't know him, Google George Mueller you know, orphanage, and, and you can read some, some great stuff about his prayer life. He, he was a guy who would get up in the morning and wake all of these orphans up and set the table for them, these giant tables, you know, for all these orphans to sit down and, and eat breakfast, knowing that there was not a crumb in the orphanage, right? And then he would pray, and son of a gun, you know, there'd be a knock on the door, and this guy would say, God told me to bring you these 30 loaves of bread. And, you know, and the next guy says, God told me to bring you all these gallons of milk. I have no idea why. Can you just please take them? Right? That was sort of George Mueller's story. And George Mueller um, would say that if you want to know the will of God, the first thing you have to do is empty out your own will. Right? Now, emptying yourself of your own will... Uh, can be a little bit uh, tricky, right? Um, it's hard to hear God's will when the volume is turned up on yours, right? We're all very focused on, on what we want to do. Um, but after you've reached that point of antipathy where, right, you know, look, I just don't care. I just want to know what God wants me to do, right? Then God will speak to us. And he will speak to us in prayer. He'll speak to us as we read the word. He'll speak to, speak to us just in random conversations, you know, with our, with our brothers and sisters, he will speak to us, often in very subtle ways that we can't really hear until we've emptied ourselves of all those things that we want. Um, and plus, once you've sort of reached that point of emptiness, then you can make decisions with a great deal of certainty 
right? Because you know that, that you're not going to have regrets about it. Even if it's hard, the, the road that you go down, right? Even if you make a decision about a career choice and, and it turns out to be really difficult, you'll never look back and say, ah, you know, was that really God telling me or was that just what I wanted? You won't look back and say that because you'll know, no, I was empty. Right? I was empty. And so wherever I am, for good or for will, ill, this is where God brought me and this is part of the all things that God will use to to grow me. Now, reaching that point of being empty can be uh, difficult, but here's one of Larry's approaches. Remember when you stand at a fork in the road, right, a career decision sort of fork, that God knows things about the destinations on those uh, two possibilities that you don't know. Right? You don't know how this job's going to turn out. You don't know what this opportunity is going to lead to. But God knows things about them right? That, that you don't know. Can we agree on that? That God knows things about the future that you do not? We there? I'm still looking for some of... Okay. Yeah. Let's use uh, Mrs. Flieger again as an example. Right? I- imagine that in a year or two... She finishes up this MDiv that she's working on so hard, right? She's going to do brilliantly. And then she has to decide whether to pursue a PhD or not, right? She might have to get a THM first. It doesn't matter. But she has to decide whether to, whether to pursue. <laughs> no mas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but when that time comes, the decision will still present itself, right? Right now, she's still struggling with what she wants. Don't worry. She's got time. Um, <laughs> And so, so she'll have choices, right? Either continue at seminary, that's one fork in the road, or, or um, do something else, right? And she doesn't know, just as you don't know, right? It's not about Flieger. You don't know which way either of those two choices will end. True? Imagine then that choosing to continue in a PhD program might result in all her dreams coming true, whatever those might be, right? Her thesis turns into a best-selling book, and she gets offers to come and minister all over the world, and we start referring to her new ideas as the Flieger effect, right? And she's got two million followers on Twitter, and, and you know, she's a, she's a favorite guest of Oprah, and, and you know, and, and, and millions of people all over the world are sort of helped by her work. That's how it could end, True if she takes that path. Alternatively, if she continued in a PhD program, she might find herself really working hard and struggling with her research and involving, let's just say, young children, one of whom falsely accuses her of touching him inappropriately. And she's never allowed to minister again, anywhere. Right? This too could happen. Yes? This is a broad range of outcomes that, that can result from this one choice that she is making. But let's assume, as I think we can, I think we agreed, that God has better information than she does. Right? He knows what lies down both of those roads at some level, depending on your theology. Now which road do you want? How about we agree that we're just going to take the road 
that God says. Let's just take the road that God wants, right? Because I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It's just like you don't know. Right? And all I know for sure is I want God with me. Okay? That's just one of Larry's tools. I invite you to deploy it. If you want to empty out your own will, agree that only God knows what may result from your decision. And then all that will matter is where he's leading. One more takeaway for you, if I can. Can I? Do we have time for one more, one more takeaway? When you face fork in the road types of career decisions, after you're empty, I recommend leaning toward the decision that will advance what God is doing in you. Right? Remember the Israelites in the desert? God is leading them on this spiritual journey from sort of helpless, you know, pagan slavery towards strong, you know, God-fearing, God-knowledgeable, God-trusting nation of priests. That's where he's leading them. And so choose the career option that will advance the spiritual work that you know that God is doing in you, right? I drug you through that long illustration of, of uh, Larry's besetting sin, uh, always having been self-centeredness, and, and now it's time for that investment to pay off. Ten years ago, um, my wife and I decided that it might be time to leave Boston. Her parents were getting older, my parents were getting older. We really needed to get where we could get our hands on them, you know, if they needed us. And we thought it would be good for our children to know their extended family, almost all of whom, my wife's side, they all live in, in Texas. And so we thought it might be time to leave Boston. And so we, you know, started putting out some feelers and seeing what might become of it. And the Lord presented us with three options. One was we could stay where we were. I was teaching at Gordon College, and they offered me more money. What's wrong with that, right? That's a, you know, that's a, that's a decent deal. Uh, the other was a, a fairly high administrative position at East Texas Baptist, which would be very close to where her aging parents lived, so it would have had a lot of benefits that would come with us. And then I had this offer from UMHB that was the lowest-paying, lowest-ranking, least prestigious, hardest work of any of the other offers that I received. And that was one of the ways that I knew that it was right because I knew that that meant it was not about me. I chose to come here because it took the focus out of myself. It put the focus on the needs of other people. I recommend that when you face career choices that you look closely at the one that will further the work that God is doing in you. That shouldn't be the end of the question, you know, the end of the conversation, but I recommend it perhaps as a starting point. Our time is growing short. Um, do you have any questions that I could answer for you today? Anything I could tell you that might be useful for you? 
I can't really see, so you'll have to you'll have to shout. Just launch it. You're right. It's like it's like you weren't expecting to be asked, isn't it? I'm sorry. You should expect to be asked. Anything I could tell you that would be useful to you today? All right. Okay, if I pray for you? It's all right? Okay. Father, you are good, and everything you do is good. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters and their commitment to your word and to your way, that they would take time out of what is a very busy time in all our lives to come and be together before you. Lord, I pray that somehow, somehow, you will speak to them teach them, grow them out of all this foolish stuff that I've been saying up here. Lord, you speak, you lead, you guide, you reveal to them the truth that they need. Father, I pray that your word will prove true and that once again for these brothers and sisters of mine, all things will work together for their good and your glory. Lord, I pray that you will lead them, not necessarily into fame and fortune, uh, but that you will lead them to becoming like Jesus. Mold us, Lord. Bend us, break us, grow us, build us into the very image of Christ. In his holy name we pray. Amen.